Hey, everybody. Welcome to Humane Voices, um, your favorite podcast about animal protection. This is Carrie here. Kelly's out today. So we are talking um, to one of my favorite people at the Humane Society of the United States. Lindsay Hamrick is our Director of Shelter Outreach and Engagement. Lindsay, don't tell anybody else. I said you're one of my favorite people. Um, yeah, no, not a word. Like nobody listens to this anyway. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so Lindsay is really in her role. She's a relationship builder and her team forges and maintains the relationships with animal shelters and rescue groups all over the country. So we're really excited to have you here, Lindsay, and to talk to you about what you've been doing lately and what you do more broadly. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk about our partnerships with shelters and rescues and how we work with hundreds of organizations collaboratively on all kinds of projects. Yeah. So just to be really clear, I think one of the things that we at the Humane Society of the United States experience a lot is, you know, you'll be out traveling and you'll encounter someone and they'll, they'll hear where you work and they're like, oh, I got my dog from you. And you have to have this sort of awkward conversation where you're like, yeah, no, actually you got your dog probably from one of the many amazing local groups. Um, I'm curious if you've had to deal with that, you know, especially as one of the people who works with all these amazing local groups, do you have that conversation as an HSUS representative too? Literally all the time. (laughs) Uh, And it certainly came up when we were working with the Beagle transfer, which I know we'll talk a little bit about today that people thought that they would be able to adopt directly from HSUS. And instead we work with shelters and rescues to place those animals. Mm -hmm. Um, What I think I would say is that it's totally understandable that the public is confused because there's upwards of about 13,000 animal shelters and rescues in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of them use terminology like humane society, SPCA, rescue league. And so it's hard to know. And so we would encourage everyone to, get to know your local rescues and shelters, and then also to recognize that there are national organizations like the Humane Society of the United States that are trying to fill in some of the gaps that your local shelter isn't able to provide. Um, And that looks like policy engagement sometimes. Mm. It looks like large-scale deployments and response. Um, And also we work collaboratively with those groups on all kinds of things. So I'm really curious, again, I know we worked um, the Shelter and Rescue Partnership program that you work with. I mean, that is a program that has existed here for a long time, right? It didn't just start with the 4,000 beagles, even though that's been obviously one of their big sort of efforts recently. Can you talk a little bit about that program and how it got started and kind of what the purpose is of it? The Shelter and Rescue Partner Program has been around for over a decade now. Uh, It was started mainly to help with animal placement. So when Mm -hmm. the animal rescue team was asked to engage whether it was a cruelty situation, a disaster response situation, to be able to work with local organizations to then move uh, adoptable dogs and cats into their programs to find homes. Over the last decade, it's gone through a lot of different iterations. Placement Mm -hmm. is still a a key component of what we work on, Um, but it goes kind of both ways. So we have partner organizations that might request our help as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, during Hurricane Ian, which we're, we can talk about, um, of course, some of our partners are impacted by that storm. And so mm-hmm. our ability to then move their shelter animals out of their buildings, which may have been damaged, or they may have to make room for displaced owned animals and give owners a chance to reunite with them. So placement works sort of both ways. Yeah, Um, But we also do a ton of mentorship and training work with shelters and rescues. And uh, our state directors are engaging with local organizations on policy engagement, um, particularly on issues that impact the shelter directly, um, mainly things that impact companion animals or the reasons that animals might come into an animal shelter. 
we're really focused on supporting those policies that prevent that from happening. So, Linz, when you're talking about, um, like, one of the things, I know that we do sort of, like, mentorship programs, and I think one of the things we also do, and stop me if I'm wrong, is to sort of connect shelters to each other for some of that mentorship, because, you know, you can have these situations where an animal shelter in one part of the country is dealing with a problem that a shelter in another place has has dealt with and sometimes has solved, or is just sort of struggling for new ideas about how to address a problem, and you see a lot of that in this work too, right? That's right. So we have a, an established mentorship program that's called the Shelter Ally Project. And when we were researching what the most important topics would be for the animal sheltering community, and frankly, what wasn't being filled by other organizations, because we are trying to avoid duplication of effort here, mm-hmm. the three big topics that came up were community cats, because cats are still overwhelmingly yeah. at risk when they come into shelters. Um, Number two was pet inclusive housing. We know that a lack of affordable pet friendly housing in the U.S. is one of the main drivers, not just of pets being surrendered to their local shelter, but also of families being separated because Mm -hmm. they have to rehome their animal. And then the third is something that we call capacity building. Capacity building is the regional approach to helping shelters, usually rural county shelters, although they could be any sort of geographic area, that don't have the resources, either financially, staffing, they don't have the bandwidth to uh, go to professional development opportunities. They're probably overwhelmed with animals coming Mm -hmm. in. They may not have the bandwidth to provide owner support programs. And in that mentorship in particular, our goal is to connect them with a shelter in their region that can not just be a mentor in the interim, but a long-term mentorship opportunity so that regionally we start to see better strength And the Mm. good news is we're just mimicking what shelters are doing naturally. Mm. So Mm -hmm. our current mentor uh, program on that topic is with the Humane Society of Charlotte. They have been doing incredible work the last few years, decade, to do outreach to rural counties in North Carolina to build Mm. their capacity. And so what we have done is talk with them about the counties that they already have relationships with. Where does it overlap with the the requests that come into our animal rescue team? Mm -hmm. And how can we connect them to some county shelters that we know are in need? That mentorship came with a $25,000 grant to support some of those programs. Um, And then, of course, any training that might need to be um, offered through the law enforcement training center at HSUS, through the Pets for Life program, Mm -hmm. whatever resources we can throw at it will add to that mentorship as well. When it comes to things like, I mean, I can imagine all these sort of um, elements of sort of public policy, you know, around, for example, you know, availability of housing for for people with pets. I mean, these are the things that really kind of hit shelters where they live. And so I'm wondering how our, our you know, state directors sort of interact with with local shelters and sort of trying to figure out, like, what are their shared priorities and how they work together? So housing is a great example of that. We are working with the Animal Protective League in Cleveland, Ohio, and then the Richmond SPCA in Virginia on housing mentorships this year because those two cities have the highest rates of eviction in the country. And so we know that shelters anecdotally report that the either the majority or the top two or three reasons why animals are surrendered are due to housing issues but nobody's really collected data at a granular level to try to address what is exactly Mm. the problem. And then simultaneously, our companion animal policy team is developing policy strategies to provide incentives to have pet-friendly housing, to ensure that publicly funded housing doesn't have restrictions, 
that breed bans are not in place. Mm-hmm. And so we work collaboratively with those shelters to see where the gaps are in their policy that could be contributing to the problem, but then also to create safety net programs because oftentimes pet owners may only need a few months to get back on their feet. And so mm-hmm. why are we taking animals into a shelter and rehoming them when really they just need temporary foster care? Yeah. Um, so housing is a great example. And I think as, as shelters have the bandwidth to address the reasons animals come into shelters, which we have not always had the bandwidth to do, um, policy change is going to be a, a clear component of that. Yeah, the the pet-friendly housing thing is so interesting. I mean, I th- I'm sure you can speak more to this, but the the sort of idea of places that are pet-friendly, I mean, stop me if I'm wrong, but there are also, there are places that sort of say pet-friendly, but when you actually look at the policy, yeah, not so much. That's right. It's like cage-free labeling. It's like, you're <laughs> pet-friendly when you have a five-pound Bichon who never says right. anything. A perfectly anything. silent pow- five-pound Bichon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, we would love if they were robotic so that they don't <laughs> right. have accidents. And did not urinate. Yeah, that would be great. Ever. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's my preferred kind of breed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, you know, pet-friendly to us means mm-hmm. no size limits, means yeah. no breed assumptions or restrictions. It means no pet limits. I mean, obviously, as long as adequate care is provided and there's not yeah. a giant stench coming from the apartment, then like let people have the pets that they, yeah. that they're and the enjoying. pet isn't eating anyone, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Safety considerations. Yeah. Totally. Right. Yeah. So one of the things I'd be curious about, I mean, along with the sort of policy efforts, you know, we've just come through sort of this incredible efforts with the Beagles where our shelter and rescue partners were so critical to that effort. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how that played out and so what it sort of took to kind of mobilize such a massive group of shelters that that kind of like came together to sort of assist with this effort. Uh, Yeah, I'm still a little paralyzed by what just happened. (laughs) You just don't want to hear the word beagle for... (laughs) I have not fully processed what just happened to all of us. Um, You know, the shelter and rescue partner program, the one of the reasons that HSUS was asked to participate in the transfer plan by the Department of Justice is because we had this network of local organizations Mm -hmm. that we knew would step up. And, you know, I had a bit of a moral crisis because this happened around 4th of July and shelters in the United States overwhelmingly are seeing a slowing of adoptions this year. And the idea that we were then going to put 4,000 more animals on the system made me a little, uh, Mm -hmm. I vomited a little in my mouth. Squeamishes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, it's amazing what an email can do. We sent an email out to every partner of ours, almost 400 organizations, um, about a week after we learned of the transfer plan with all the details that we had at that that time and received overwhelming responses. Mm -hmm. So we, we got responses from almost every state offering to help Uh, We got about 150 new applications to join the program because we were working with established partners uh, for the most part. And in the end, we had far more placement than we needed. Uh, We Mm. had secured placement for all of the dogs within about a month, um, even though logistically we needed two months to get it done. And so, you know, it, it just reminds me that when there's a shared mission, that animal welfare, even though we can sometimes be a little divisive, Mm -hmm. that there are moments like this summer where everybody at every level, corporate, national nonprofit, local organizations can come together and make something happen um, that is not just really impactful to those individual dogs, but shared the message of how critical this animal testing issue is. Yeah. I mean, not only the issue of animal testing, but it's also, you know, 
through participating in this, I can imagine that it, it, I hope it would bring people's attention to some of the work that the local shelters do. You know, it's sometimes hard for animal shelters to sort of generate news, but when they are in the news in such a positive way, it seems to bring people into the shelters. Did you, did you hear that from folks or like, what was, what was the experience and what was people's reaction to sort of participating in this huge, almost like not an airlift exactly, but a a beagle lift, I guess. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that people were excited to help. I think we, you know, our assumption, whether it's this kind of situation or a movement of animals during a hurricane, is that the local organizations will benefit in some way, whether it's other animals at the shelter will be adopted as well. Donations will come into the local organization, mm. uh, media coverage of volunteers, foster parents, etc. And anecdotally, that's what we heard again. But We also want to know for sure. And so Mm. we met with Shelter Animals Count a few weeks ago. It's a coalition that manages a lot of data for the animal sheltering field. And we are working on a research study with them now to find out if the organizations that took beagles in did see movement of other shelter pets at the same time. Interesting. Yeah. And what's the sort of ETA on that, on that work? I mean, is it, is that the sort of research that's going to be available in a couple of months? I mean, will you be able to come, will we be able to have you back on the pod and to say, you know, like, what'd you find out? Yeah. I think in a few months, because the beauty of shelter animals count is that if partner organizations are already submitting data to them, it's really just a data analysis to see Mm -hmm. if their adoption rates increased. We might even look into things like were donations up? Were was there additional volunteers that came in? Um, because I'd really love to know: is there regional differences? Is there a different mm. strategy we should use in the future? Or did everyone benefit? And the way that we did it is how we would do something like that again. Yeah, totally. So I know the um, the Beagles case was like a large a large scale case, but we get involved in the smaller stuff too, right? More often than not, it's smaller situations. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think it was a little before the Beagles. It's all blending together now. Uh, There was a very small rural county shelter in Texas that had done a criminal investigation involving 10 pitbull type dogs who all had heartworm disease. They were emaciated Mm -hmm. and they just did not understandably have the resources to help these animals medically and find them new homes. We worked with one of our partners in Texas, Operation Kindness, to get those animals moved over to them. We provided financial funding so that they could cover the cost of rehabilitation for those dogs. But the really cool part about Operation Kindness is that simultaneously, they accepted a transport of animals from Texas that were supposed to go to Massachusetts. And the reason they did that is so that Massachusetts could help us with the beagles Mm. without displacing the dogs that were meant to come to Massachusetts from Texas. And so in the beagle transfer of 2022, there was just so much collaboration and communication to make sure that other animals were not impacted by the movement of the beagles across the country. Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm curious, like, you know, it seems like this was such a vast number of beagles. Like, how many people do we know who have these beagles? Like I've had random people reach out to me on Twitter from my, like from my other world, from my, the cocktail world that I sort of operate with on, on the side. I know cocktail people who got a beagle. Yeah. My partner's aunt and uncle from California were visiting Cape Cod and went to a store with a woman who had a beagle puppy and she adopted one of the beagles. And that was the picture that I got. So fantastic! I think that we will, at least for the next decade or so, be surrounded by beagle puppies. And that is a dream all of us could agree with. 
All right. So I guess for a while, we're just clearly going to be playing sort of a six degrees of Kevin Beagle, I guess. So it's, <laughs> uh, we can look forward to that. Um, so in, in the interim, so uh, along with the sort of the shelter mentorship program we do, I know we we work with a lot of our shelter and rescue partners on Animal Care Expo. Um, but one of the other things is transports. And I know that we've got work going on right now, right after um, the horrible stuff that happened with Hurricane Ian. Um, can you talk a little bit about what's going on in Florida and the kind of work we did down there and our, what our shelter partners are doing on the ground? Yeah. So before the storm hit, and this is common practice now, mm-hmm. um, I think there's still confusion about how organizations respond to natural disasters and Um, I think it's important to qualify here that the animals we move out of a storm area are animals who are already up for adoption at a local shelter. And so once we get a sense of where a storm is going, which of course always changes last minute, uh, we try to move animals out of that area in case the shelter is impacted or if the shelter staff is impacted and there isn't folks to go in and take care of the animals. Now we're in the stage where Uh, We know which shelters have been impacted. The animal rescue team has deployed to provide on-the-ground assistance in those shelters, providing animal care, um, setting up a distribution center to provide pet supplies to owned pets in the area. And um, we're going to try to move some of the shelter pets out of those impacted shelters so that there aren't as many animals to take care of. And it can clear up some space if there's displaced owned pets that need to Mm -hmm. come in and wait for their, their owners to get back on their feet. Linz, how long have you been working on this this particular issue? Like with these, I, you came out of a sheltering background, right? Before you came to HSUS. Yeah, my background before HSUS, which is now eight years, nine years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, Time has no meaning anymore. Don't worry about there's it. There's nothing yeah. happening. Um, I was a chief operating officer of an animal shelter up in New England, where I live, mm-hmm. and you know, growing up in New England's animal sheltering mm-hmm. community, it's a very it has historically been a different climate up here where, you know, we had some of the first spay neuter laws. Uh, we started doing transport in 2001. I mean, it's been like 20 years that we've been mm. moving dogs, but even for the last decade about, you know, cats are now surpassing dogs at mm. some shelters. Mm-hmm. And so we've been through all the regulatory messes of mm. what that means and where the balance is and making sure it's done responsibly. Um, and so, working in this position at HSUS, I'm an operations person. So to me, the thing that I, that blows my mind, whether it's the Beagles or a small cruelty case is I can only imagine that, that almost every local shelter right now is understaffed. They have veterinary shortages and yet still they are finding creative ways to help with large scale issues that are happening outside Mm -hmm. of their own community while still providing services to the community members there. Um, And I think that when we say support your local shelter, what we mean by that is yes, donations and volunteering and all that, but it's really like, remember that there are people going to work every day who yes, are passionate about this work, but are doing a really hard job. It's a really hard thing to keep working in this field. And the more community support that your local shelter gets, the more likely people will stay and do really good work for animals. So can you, I mean, can you tell us some of the things that you've seen and experienced over your time working with this program? I mean, any sort of stories stand out for you? Yeah. um, You know, I think during the Beagle transfer, uh, Kentucky Humane Society, there was um, severe flooding in Kentucky at the same time. And Kentucky Humane stepped in to not only house the animals that were impacted at a local uh, Kentucky shelter, but then took in Beagles for us in Mm. order to place them. And, you know, I think 
10 years ago when we thought of the state of Kentucky or we thought of Florida or we thought of some of these Southern states, we thought, oh, they're too overwhelmed to be able to assist and things like Mm -hmm. that. And I have just seen such a really amazing um, growth in our field to be able Mm -hmm. to address things, but do do it responsibly and have the capacity to do it. So, um, you know, Tulsa Humane Society of Tulsa, they didn't just accept uh, some of the beagles for us, but they brought their enormous rig and delivered beagles to other partners for us because we, oh, great. we had so much to do like at the facility in Virginia and at our own care facility in Maryland that we didn't have the bandwidth to drive these dogs all over the country. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of ways that partners help that wasn't just accepting beagles in and, and finding them new homes. Yeah, that's incredible. Lindsay, uh, producer Chad here, you didn't cry like we had talked about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm an operations person. I don't cry. I'm alone at midnight. Lindsay, I can come over and just poke you real hard and feel you cry if that would help. (laughs) All right. Um, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming and telling us about the the incredible work that shelters and rescues do and all those sort of ways that we're working with them. And, you know, congratulations to you and all of our partners on all the incredible work they do every day. But also like this, this Beagle thing is just still, I'm kind of floored by it. Like how many of those Beagles are out there? It's just incredible. Um, Just for all our listeners, if you want to get involved in your local shelter, you know, there's so many things you can do to support them, you know, just look them up, find out who your local groups are, go out and check them out. And here at um, the HSUS, if you are interested in in shelter work and if you're interested or if you actually work at a shelter or rescue, we have a great resource, humanepro.org, that has tons of our resources for professionals who are involved in the field or for people who are trying to learn more about the field. Go check it out. Lindsay, anything else you should you think people should know about their local shelters and rescues or about our program? I think just get to know your community's needs and how your shelter is addressing it. And and don't be afraid to support really progressive programming. It's not always about adoption. It's sometimes, in fact, it's more and more so about supporting owners in your community mm-hmm. and funding programs that help with vaccines and spay neuter and pet food pantries and behavioral support. And that's ultimately what's going to stop this cycle of animals even needing to come into a shelter. So I'm really excited mm-hmm. about that future. Yeah, that's really amazing to see how the model is shifting. It's terrific. Uh, Well, folks, thanks for listening. Lindsay Hamrick, thanks so much for being here. And we will see you next time on Humane Voices. Mm